Isaiah chapter 54, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 3. Actually, I'm going to read the chapter. Sing, O barren, you who have not born. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you shall expand to the right and to the left and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. Do not fear. For you will not be ashamed, neither be disgraced. For you will not be put to shame, for you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit like a youthful wife when you were refused, says your God. For a mere moment, I have forsaken you. But with great mercies, I will gather you. With a little wrath, I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting kindness, I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. For this is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so I have sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you. Nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who who has mercy on you. O you afflicted one. Tossed with tempest and not comforted. Behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of crystal, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. Indeed, they shall surely assemble, but not because of me. Whoever assembles against you shall fall for your sake. Behold, I've created the blacksmith who blows the coals in the fire, who brings forth an instrument for his work, and I've created the spoiler to destroy. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue which rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 53, we learned about the suffering servant who is 700 years into the future. The suffering servant, the Messiah who will come. And from chapter 53 to chapter 54, we go from suffering to song. As a matter of fact, chapter 54 and 55 are some of the most beautiful lyrics of Hebrew poetry that has ever been written. And in chapter 54, we see 
a chapter that is dedicated to the fact that those who have rebelled against the Lord, those who have backslidden, those who have found themselves, remember, in a place of poverty and distress. Remember, the the walls of Jerusalem have been burnt and destroyed. Their homes have been taken away from them. Husbands and Sons have been killed and they've been transported into captivity in Babylon because of their sin and because of their rebellion and because of their inability to obey God. They find themselves in this captive circumstance. But God promises to forgive them if they'll repent and return. So. He basically, there's a reiteration, an invitation that takes place throughout the the chapter. Come home and I'll set you free and I'll fill you with joy in verses 1 through 3. Come home and I'll deliver you from fear and shame and disgrace in verse 4. Come home and be reconciled to God in verses 5 through 10. Come home because your future is with God and with Christ in Messiah's kingdom. The word backslide has fallen out of favor in our culture and our society. Even among Christians, I very seldom hear people talk about backsliders. We live in a culture that prefers the clinical language of therapy. We opt for the word relapse. Oh, he's relapsed, you know. She's relapsed. Do you know what backslide means? It means to fall from grace. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 4, Paul uses the term to fall from grace. In 1 Timothy 1.19, Paul writes, Having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. Backsliding begins with a refusal to talk to God and speak to God. It doesn't usually begin with turning your back on God. It just begins with a refusal to talk to Him and then listen to Him. And pretty soon you turn your back on Him and pretty soon you walk in a different direction. You see, you are either going forward or you are going back. You are going up or you are going down. You are praying more or you are praying less. You are reading more or you are reading less. You are ministering more or you are ministering less. You are growing in grace or you are developing an unhealthy preoccupation with yourself. F.W. Norwood said, life's greatest tragedy is to lose God and not miss Him. Didn't see you in church. Yeah, I don't miss church. I don't miss reading the Bible. I don't miss my Christian friends. The expression backslide means to revert to a worse condition. It means to lapse morally. It it literally has the idea of to walk away from your practice of religion. And if you you turn to the very next book, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 22, Jeremiah is speaking to the children of Israel. And verse 22 says, return, you backsliding children. And I will heal your backslidings. Their response? Indeed, we do come to you. For you are the Lord 
our God. The backsliding believer ignores or neglects worship, personal devotion, reading the Bible, praying, witnessing. They just basically ignore the lost world around them. The children of Israel constantly struggled with backsliding. If you have read the Bible at all and you've read the story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then the children of Israel and Joseph and Joseph's brothers and and Egypt and the time of the judges and then the time of the kings and then the time of the prophets over and over again, the reoccurring theme is God shows up and says, I love you and I'm willing to be your God. And Israel turns her back on the Lord. So the conversation typically goes, I need you to come back. I need you to turn from your wickedness. I need you to return to me. And guess what? I'll forgive you. I love you and I will forgive you. They turned away from the Lord. They embraced wickedness. They worshiped foreign gods. And then God continued to love his people. We saw in Isaiah 53 that the Lord would send the Messiah, the suffering servant. He would bring salvation. He would bring redemption. He would bring forgiveness and hope and reconciliation. And God would send the suffering servant, the Messiah, to die for the sins of the whole world. And he extends an invitation to the weak and to the wicked and to the hypocrite and to the backslider. And so when you get to chapter 54 and you see the opening verse and it says, Sing, O barren, you who have not born. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not labored with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. It's hard to capture the meaning in the original language, but the word sing means almost like I'm struggling for an expression. It means to throw up with song. It means that there's a song that is inside of you and that it can't help but come out. And and here is the counterintuitive circumstance. Remember, they're in bondage. They're in... They're in Babylon. They are slaves. Their homes have been destroyed and their children have been taken away from you. And that doesn't seem the right time to sing. But do you remember in the New Testament when when Paul and Silas, when they found themselves in Philippi and they were preaching the gospel. And remember, they said, don't do that. Don't preach the gospel. And they arrested Paul and they arrested Silas and they beat them and they beat them with, with lashes, even though Paul was a Roman citizen. And then they threw him into jail. And do you remember what he did? He sang. He sang songs. I'm sure it wasn't written back in those days, but he was singing something like, How great is our God. Everybody sing, How great, how great is our God. And it's, it, was, it was not religious and it wasn't restrained. It wasn't proper. I'm sure that Paul and Silas's hands weren't folded and their eyes bowed. I think that they were singing at the top of their lungs. And do you remember what happened? An earthquake came and liberated them. Someone once wrote, every church should put a notice on its front door. Quote, all face-saving moralists take warning. Within these doors, your chilly pride is in danger of melting into exuberant joy. Enter at your own risk. But all sinners depressed with guilt are welcome. 
it makes perfect sense. In sorrow, in pain, in deprivation, in isolation, and in the most horrible circumstances, it's the same. The test of a church's faith isn't just simply the wording of its statement of, of faith or its creed, but the gladness that takes place in its worship. And Israel's offered restoration. They're, they're offered a chance to come home. And so the destruction of Jerusalem and the surrounding cities, coupled with the transfer of the captives to, to, to Babylon, would have severely depleted them as a people. They had become utterly barren. And remember, remember, the vast majority of their population has been wiped out. And so the prophet says, Sing, O barren, you who have not borne. Break forth into singing, cry aloud, you who have not labored with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Here's the idea. The people of God would no longer be barren. Even though Judah and Benjamin has been taken into captivity, remember Judah was barren because she had forsaken her husband, the Lord. Israel was dispersed to the north. Judah was barren in the south. They had forsaken God. The barren, the desolate becomes more fruitful than the faithful. How is that possible? The faithless grow in numbers. They are fruitful and reproduce. How can a person who can't have children, have children. Because God is going to restore the Jew. But he's going to do something else. He's not only going to restore the Jew back to the land, but guess what? When he sends the Messiah, he's going to save the Gentiles. And so even though there is like this tiny little remnant that is stuck in Babylon, and it looks like Faith and the people of faith and the circumstances of faith are going to disappear. It is not true because God is going to save the world through the Messiah. And so look at verse 2 when it says, Enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. Here's, here's what's happening. The writer of the book of Isaiah is giving us a metaphor, a picture of a Bedouin tent in the desert. You see, people in those days, they didn't necessarily live in brick buildings or houses. They didn't have condos in Babylon. Although there was great buildings and there was great circumstances, the children of Israel, remember, these were people who were used to living in tents. And when you enlarge your family, when you had lots and lots of children, and when your daughters married sons and your sons married other girls, and then they had children, you would enlarge your tents. And so he's basically saying, enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Here's what he's basically saying. He's talking to a group of people who, for all intents and purposes, are homeless. And when you're homeless and you're by yourself... You buy a little utility apartment. You don't get a house with eight rooms. But he's saying, enlarge your tent. 
stretch out the curtains. The faithful are to enlarge their tents to make room for the growing population. And look what it says in verse 3. For you shall expand to the right and to the left, and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the cities desolate. You have to understand the context of what's taking place. We're homeless and we're empty and we're destroyed. And the, and the Lord God is making a promise you don't understand. I'm not through with you yet. I'm not finished with you yet. You are going to be the seed that I am going to use to expand the invitation of salvation to the whole earth. And think about that for just a moment for you. Because guess what? You are growing or you're shrinking. You are praying more or you're praying less. You are studying more or you're studying less. You are being used by God day by day more and more or you are not being used by God day by day. And if you find yourself in a dry place and if you find yourself in an empty place and if you find yourself in a lonely place and if you find yourself in a place where you think that you are useless, the Lord is in fact inviting you to Enlarge your tent. Stretch out the curtains. Do not spare. Think like you've never thought before. Dream like you've never dreamed before. Imagine your life and imagine you being used by God in the way that He always intended. Over and over again, the Lord warned His people, please, Please don't forsake me. Please, please don't turn to wickedness. Please don't follow other gods. Please don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. We are told not to turn away from the Lord. We are told not to embrace this world. We are told to remain true to the Lord. So how many people have forsaken the Lord for the passing pleasures of a world that's destined to die? People want pleasure and fame and possession and wealth. We want our modern pantheon of stars. We love the parade on film and television and the internet and the radio. We celebrate the cult of celebrity. But the Bible says we've been given everything we need in Christ. We've been given everything that we need in His Word and in His promises. We have been given everything in Jesus. So what is it about us that continues to ache and yearn for the things that have no meaning and little value? The Bible says we've been given ample and sufficient portion in Jesus Christ. We sang it. You're all I want. You're all I need. I have everything that I need that I have in you. Now, we sing it, but we don't always mean it. But you see, that's one of the values of coming in and worshiping and saying, Lord, even though my mind and my heart and even perhaps my behavior throughout the day hasn't indicated, Lord, I have to affirm that what the Bible still says is true. In case you've forgotten, Listen to some of the warnings that are given to us in the Bible. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 12, it says, And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. When there's no restrictions or prohibitions, if there's nobody around to govern you, if there's nobody around who cares what you're watching on the computer, if there's nobody around who cares what you're watching on the TV, if there's nobody around who watches you or who cares, 
then you sometimes will give yourself permission. Nobody's watching me. Nobody cares. I'm just going to do what I want. In Luke 9.62 it says, But Jesus said, No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. In Proverbs 14.14 it says, The backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways. But a good man will be satisfied from above. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus speaking to the church at Ephesus says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. Do you remember his admonition? Remember. Repent. Return. Listen to some of the promises God makes to backsliders who repent and return to him. In Isaiah 55, 7, in the the next chapter, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. If you've ever wondered in your heart what God thinks about you and feels about you, he loves you. He's willing to forgive you. Let the wicked forsake his way. In Matthew 5, 4, it says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The idea is that we mourn the circumstances of our wickedness and our sin. We are truly sorry, not just in an emotional way, but in such a way that it causes us to think differently about our circumstances. We mourn our wickedness and our sin. And guess what? If you mourn your wickedness and your sin, the Lord will come to you and He will embrace you and He will comfort you and He will say, I I do forgive you and I do love you and I will restore you. In Luke 15, 7, it says, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that it isn't just simply God. If that were enough, that would be enough. But even the angels of heaven are watching you going, come on, come on, just say it. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? My wickedness and my sin, I'm sorry. And I don't want it to be a part of my life anymore. I want to turn from this and I want to do something different. And look what it says. Come home. I'll I'll deliver you from the fear and the shame and the disgrace. Look what it says in verse 4. Do not fear. For you will not be ashamed, neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame, for you will forget the shame of your youth and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. The backslidden, the one in bondage, is promised deliverance from three things. Look at it. Fear and shame and humiliation. I'm so afraid of what people will think. I'm I'm afraid of what God thinks. Don't be afraid. I'm so ashamed. I'm so ashamed of what I've done. The Lord knows. He'll wash you. He will cleanse you. I feel so humiliated. I know. 
we need to think for a moment. Now, I, I need you to think for a moment. I need you to understand what it is you're reading and, again, the context of what you're reading. These promises seemed outrageous and out of reach for a, for a, a people whose city is destroyed, whose family is destroyed, whose past has been laid into ruins, and whose future looks hopeless. This isn't for the person who everything is going good. This isn't, this isn't a message that's given while they're at Disneyland. Do you understand how outrageous, how unrealistic? That's what's happening here. Because that's what's happening in our lives. Typically, when a person says, sing songs of joy, I don't feel like singing. Rejoice in the Lord, I don't feel like rejoicing. Turn from your sin. I don't feel like repenting. Trust God. Why should I? At the time of the prophecy, they're drinking the deep and bitter cup of affliction. They are in the pain phase. They are in that tender portion of circumstances when we find ourselves in rebellion and disobedience and God is reaching out. They would have been living in daily oppression, daily hardship, daily deprivation. Just like some of you. Just like some of you where you get up every morning and every morning you hurt and every morning you're feeling the weight of the circumstances of your life. Every morning you're feeling the weight of what's going on. As slaves in Babylon, they would continue to bear the shame and the humiliation of their captivity. Today, the New York governor, for the first time in a hundred years, resigned his position. He's the first governor in over a hundred years in New York who's had to leave office because of a scandal. I watched a brief news clip of his wife standing next to him. Can you imagine the humiliation? The shame? The horror? I'm thinking of his poor wife, and I'm, I'm th- he's thinking, I'm stepping down, I'm done, I'm politically done. And the wife thinking, I'm done too, because as soon as this interview is over, I'm going to kill him. You know, he's going to have to face the issues of infidelity, and I'm going to have to face the issues of murder. And can you imagine, in that most painful painful moment because of their captivity, because of their rejection of God because of their wicked behavior they were in captivity it was their continual rejection of God and their wicked behavior down through the centuries from the time that they were formed as a nation to the time of the captivity it was uninterrupted sin and for you you might think you know ever since I became a Christian I started off pretty good And then I had that moment, I had that bump, and I went a little bit backwards. But then I returned, and then I went a little bit forward, and then I went a little bit backwards. And then I went a little bit forward, and then I went a lot backwards. And the backwards became longer. And I found myself, instead of living a life of obedience and submission, 
of living a life of disobedience and not submission. Now think about it for just a moment. It's at the point of disobedience and a refusal to submit that the Lord offers Israel deliverance. Have you ever been in a situation where you thought, you know, Maybe I'll approach God if I go to church, if I start reading my Bible again, then I can begin to deal with these wicked circumstances of my life. My advice? I'm glad you're here, but if you're, if you're not here and you're listening on, on, on tape or something, don't wait. Turn now. Repent now. Go back now. Receive forgiveness and hope now. You, you don't have to wait. You can, you can go back now. There would come a day when they would no longer fear the oppression of their enemies. They would no longer be terrified by every trial and every temptation. Fear would be erased from their hearts. It would be replaced with a spirit of peace and joy and confidence in the Lord. In that day, the shame of sin would no longer be remembered. The transgressions of youth would be forgotten. The sins committed as adults, gone. And Israel's youth, remember, it refers to the entire history of Israel. From Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all the way through to to Moses on Mount Sinai, all the way to the Babylonian captivity. And by the way, the reproach of widowhood, when it says in verse 4, and will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. In that culture and society, if you were a woman and you lost your husband, you lost the ability to contribute to the tribe and to the society. You see, a woman's honor and a woman's worth was in the woman's ability to contribute to the substance or the testimony of her husband. And when her husband was gone, her worth was gone. It was a devastating thing in that culture and that society to have your husband die. There was only one thing worse for a Hebrew woman than to lose her husband to death. And you know what that was? It was to lose her husband to divorce. Because if she lost her husband to death, it, she didn't have any choice in the matter. But if she lost her husband to divorce, it was because her husband divorced her and abandoned her. And so the reproach of widowhood here refers to Israel who has abandoned her husband and committed spiritual adultery by turning to false gods and the wickedness of this world. Forsaking God is disgraceful. It's as disgraceful as a woman who abandons her honorable husband to commit adultery with another man. That's the idea. When Jesus Christ returns, the disgrace of forsaking the Lord will be removed and remembered no more. That's the promise. And I think that the promise and the application applies to each and every one of us. To all who forsake and abandon the Lord, but all who return in true repentance and embrace the Lord. Guess what we'll experience? Deliverance from fear. Deliverance from shame. Deliverance from humiliation. I know what some of you are thinking. 
I don't. I still feel fear. I still fear shame. I still fear humiliation. I'm still experiencing these things. But here's the promise. God's presence and God's power will fill the believer and strengthen you. Remember what the Bible says. Perfect love casts out fear because fear has torment. Here is the promise, particularly for the New Testament believer. God shows up. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. Your forgiveness is real. The presence of God in your life is real. The power of the Holy Spirit is real. Believers must trust the Lord. They must truly follow Him. And they must truly follow Him in times of trial and difficulty and hardship and temptation. Just like Job. He loses everything. And remember his statement. Even if you slay me, Yet will I serve you. Remember, the Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's easy to serve the Lord when there are no trials, when there are no temptations, when there are no difficulties, when there are no hardships, when there are no temptations. But in the midst of all of those things, if you continue to pray and you continue to sing and you continue to read and you continue to rejoice and you continue to minister... That's when you know you're growing and maturing and changing. What does the Lord have to say about fear? Remember in Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust. I won't be afraid. For Yah, the Lord, is my strength and song. He also has become my salvation. I'm going to continue to sing. Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Don't be dismayed. I am your God. I don't feel any strength. I will strengthen you. I don't feel like there's anybody there to help me. I will help you. I feel like everybody's let me down. I will uphold you. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, Paul writes to Timothy literally on his deathbed. He's facing an executioner's axe. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Do you want to be delivered from the shame of sin? Do you want to be delivered from the shame and the humiliation of sin? I'm going to tell you the way to do that. Refuse. Refuse to live the life of a hypocrite. I am going to pray. I am going to minister. I am going to serve. I'm going to love them and believe them in the good times, and I'm going to love them and believe them in the bad times. To the best of my ability, I'm going to love them and I'm going to serve them. Guess what? When you refuse to live the life of a hypocrite, power and strength. But it isn't because you've refused to live the life of a hypocrite. It's because you are now willing to, in humility, allow the power of the Holy Spirit to come and live inside of you the life that you wouldn't live on your own. Backsliders who truly repent 
will be delivered from the humiliation of bondage. The whole world, the Bible says, is in bondage to sin. We can't keep from sinning. Every human being is truly going to sin. But guess what? We can sin less. We will never be sinless. But each and every one of us can sin less. Many of us find ourselves in what seems like a hopeless addiction. Alcohol, drugs, nicotine, sexual immorality, stealing, lying, gluttony, cursing. You can fill in the blank of whatever you want. We may lack discipline and self-control. We may be weak-minded and weak-hearted. But the Lord wants to change all that. He wants to be your strong tower and your strength. The Lord will deliver us from the humiliation of bondage. But I want you to listen carefully. The promise is conditional. Here's the condition. Do not forsake the Lord. Do not turn your back on the Lord. Do not walk away from the Lord in your thinking and in your living. Through Jesus Christ the Lord, we experience The reality that he removes the dishonor and the humiliation and the bondage. This is what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 1 verse 4. He, speaking of Jesus, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. It is the will of God our Father that Jesus Christ's life and death and resurrection and presence in your life delivers you from this present evil age. Again, 2 Timothy 4.18 And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. The Lord will deliver you. And look what it says in verse 5. Come home. Come home. Be reconciled to God. Listen to what it says. For your Maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. In that one passage in verse 5, look at how many titles of God is given. For your Creator, your Maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. He is Maker, Lord of hosts, Redeemer, Holy One, God. Why is all of that important? Because the Lord God initiates the rescue and the reconciliation. It is God who reaches out in moments of desperation and separation and backsliding. It's the Lord who's initiating the reconciliation. The Lord is our husband, our maker. And by the way, that's an amazing statement. God likens his friendship as an intimate husband. He's basically using that as an illustration that just like there's a loving bond between husband and wife, there is a loving bond between God and his people. Now, for some of you, you might think, I don't have that loving bond. Well, He's not specifically referring to your individual circumstance. But he is referring to an ideal circumstance. And the ideal circumstance is the picture of a husband and wife. He is our creator who truly loves us. God will not abandon his people to their enemies or to the enslaving power of their sin. That's the key. God's 
desire is not to abandon you to your enemies or to the enslaving power of sin. He reaches out to his wayward people. He longs for them and aches for their return. He understands the enemies that you have and he understands the bondages that you experience and he's reaching out to you. And by the way, God has the power to do this. Why? He's called the Lord of hosts. That's the idea that he is The Redeemer and the Holy One. These titles are filled with meaning. It speaks of God's power to reconcile. That's what a Redeemer is. God's power to control heaven and earth. So when it says He's the Lord of hosts, that means that He is the Lord who controls everyone and everything. That means He has the power to do what He says He will do. He has the power to control heaven and earth, and He is holy. What does that mean? It means that in his perfections, in his perfect, flawless righteousness, he is going to be able to satisfy his justice. And he's going to be able to demonstrate his love. By the way, there's only one way to do that. And that's through Jesus Christ the Lord. Guess what? In Christ, justice is satisfied. Love is demonstrated. Here is the idea. Not only in holiness is He perfect and flawless and righteous, He always does the right thing. Do you realize God will never do the wrong thing, ever? He always shows His love. And do you know how He always shows His love? By accepting and not rejecting backsliders who return to Him. That's part of the promise. I want you to think about that. He always accepts, not rejects, backsliders who return to Him. He's the Redeemer. It's in His nature to save. It's His nature to save from sin. It's His nature to save from enemies. He's the Redeemer. And like a loving husband, He calls the world to return to His warm embrace, to return to His arms of love. Like a young, loving husband with a single-minded devotion, He passionately pursues the object of His affection. And that's, that's what's being illustrated in the passage. Look at verse 6. For the Lord has called you like a woman, forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused, says your God. Do you understand? He's calling at the moment of heartbreaking emptiness, of desperate loneliness, of fear and rejection. Now look what it says. In verse 7, for a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. What does that mean? They are in bondage. They are in in, in Babylon. They are in pain. I want you to listen carefully. Sin can and does arouse God's anger. And it forces him to act. If you think God is happy with your sin, you're wrong. If you think you're getting away with it, you're wrong. If you think that the thoughts that you're thinking doesn't matter, you're wrong. If you think that the wickedness, just because no one knows about it, it's still wrong. 
And so he says, With a little wrath, I hid my face from you for a moment, in verse 8. But with everlasting kindness, I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Do you understand what the Lord is saying? God will chastise His people when they turn from Him. God will punish wickedness. Remember in the New Testament, He chastises and disciplines sons and daughters, but you are sons and daughters, and the discipline is for a moment, but the forgiveness is forever. That's the idea. When believers are unfaithful, when believers turn to false gods, when believers embrace wickedness, here's the promise, God will discipline you. But there's another promise. God will not abandon you forever. He will not hide His face forever. He will hide His face from the carnal, from the worldly, from the wicked for a moment. But not forever. It's for a short time. Do you want to know why? He desires to be merciful. He desires to be compassionate. He assures, he assures, he assures the backslider that he will show mercy and compassion and that he will receive them. And look what it says in verse 9. For this is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. Here's here's the idea. The Lord's oath guarantees it. Do you remember in the book of Genesis, after the world was wiped out by a flood? Do you remember when the ark came and the rain stopped? There was a sign in the heaven. What was that sign? It was a rainbow. And then God made a promise, and here was the promise. He that he would never destroy the earth again, ever again, by flood. So there's a lot still on his little laundry list. He has fire and meteorites, earthquakes. Yeah, there's lots of ways that God can destroy the planet Earth. But look what it says. For this is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. Here's the idea. He's giving an oath. He's making a covenantal oath. There will come a day. Here's what the Lord is promising. There will come a day when the Lord will never, ever again rebuke His people. He will never be angry with Him. This oath is more, much more. It's much more sure than even the promise that He made to Noah that He would never destroy the earth again with a flood. Here's the idea. Just like I made that promise and that covenant and I will keep it. I'm making a promise to you and I'm making a covenant to you and I will keep it. I will, listen carefully, I will never, no never, no ever go back on my word. Well, how certain is this promise? How can we be sure that you're going to keep your promise? What will you give us as collateral? Verse 10. For the mountains shall depart, and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has mercy on you. Here's what he's saying. I want you to imagine a world where every mountain disappears. 
I want you to imagine an earth where you wake up in the morning and the Rocky Mountains are gone and the Himalayas are gone and Kilimanjaro is gone and every mountain and every hill has been removed. But even then, my kindness shall not depart from you. Nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has mercy on you. Here's the promise. He won't take away his love. And he won't take away his peace. And he will fulfill his promises. And I want you to remember, remember the context. What's happened before chapter 54? It's chapter 53. How is this possible? How can God do this? How can God do this? Because 700 years in the future, a suffering servant is going to come. And he's going to die. He's going to be crushed. Remember, we learned that last week. He's going to be bruised and crushed. He's going to experience the weight of torment. And if you will just simply believe that, God will forgive you and restore you. God loves His people. He wants to be reconciled with each and every individual who strays from Him. Not just the children of Israel who are in Babylon, but you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to restore you. Even if you walked away from Him. Even if you've deserted Him. Even if you've entered into wicked and unproductive relationships that have dishonored Him. Even if you've embraced false teaching and false religion. Even if you have caused God incredible pain. He wants you to return to Him. He wants to love you and He wants to forgive you. And here's the promise. He reaches out to us in love. He longs for friendship and fellowship. When we drift away, He continues to reach out in love. He wants us to forsake our sinful ways. He wants us to return to Him. He wants to be reconciled to the backslider. But it will only come one way. On His terms. And His terms are through Jesus Christ the Lord. Because it's Jesus Christ who's brought peace. It's Jesus Christ who's brought forgiveness. It's Jesus Christ who has brought hope. There's only one mediator between God and man. It's the man Christ Jesus. Christ alone can forgive our sins. And look what it says. Come home. Your future is in Messiah's kingdom. Look what it says in verse 11. Oh, you afflicted one, tossed with tempest and not comforted. Behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundations with sapphires. Do you understand what he's saying? Oh, you afflicted ones, they're hurt, they're in pain, they're desperate, they're, they're enslaved. Tossed with tempest and not comforted. They hurt all the time. Behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems. The stones that he's talking about are the burnt and charred remains of what used to be the beautiful city Jerusalem. Do you understand what the Lord is saying here? I'm going to bring, I'm going to make you a new city. 
I'm going to make you a holy city. I'm going to make you a new city. Behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundations with sapphires. The new Jerusalem will be a a city of perfection, of beauty and value. And do you know where you get it? I don't have time to read it, but I want to so bad. Just bear with me for just a second. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. In Revelation chapter 21, we get a peek at the city beginning in verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with twelve gates and twelve angels at the gates, and names were written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. Now, the wall of the city had twelve foundations and twelve apostles of the Lamb, and he he talked with me. Uh, He had a gold read to measure the city, its gates, its wall. The city is laid out as a square. The length is as great as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man that is of an angel. Then the construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. And I got to stop. Just in case you were wondering what it's really going to look like. But here's the point. The new Jerusalem is perfect and beautiful and valuable. Here's the idea. What loss have you experienced? I lost this and I lost this and I lost this. I'll give it all back to you. I'll make your pinnacles, look what it says in verse 12, I will make your pinnacles of rubies, your gates of crystal, and all your walls of precious stones. God himself will build the city. God will build the city. Remember in John 14, when he was getting ready to die, Jesus told his disciples, I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to receive you to myself but I'm in pain and I've lost my home and they're foreclosing on the mortgage and I could lose everything. Trust me. Trust me and I'll take care of you. Look what it says in verse 13. All your children shall be taught by the Lord. You won't be homeschooled. You'll be heaven-schooled. And the Lord will be the teacher, and great shall be the peace of your children. The citizens of heaven will be taught by the Lord himself, and their hearts will be filled with peace. He's describing the future kingdom. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. Here's what he's saying. The citizens will live in righteousness. They'll live in a fair and just government. There won't be any oppression. There won't be any social evil. There won't be any lawlessness. And look what it says in verse 15. Indeed, they shall surely assemble, not, not because of me. Whoever assembles against you shall, shall fall for your sake. Here's the idea. The citizens will be protected. 
in Christ's kingdom and in Messiah's kingdom, all citizens will be protected. They will never be abused. They will never be taken advantage of. God will defeat the enemies of his people. In Isaiah 54, 16, look what it says. Behold, I've created the blacksmith who blows the coals and the fire, who brings forth an instrument for his work. And I have created the spoiler to destroy. Here's the idea. God's created and he's used the nations and he's taken all of the surrounding nations. He's taken Babylon. He's taken Assyria. He's taken the Chaldeans. He's taken the Persians. He's taken the Romans. He's taken every single nation and he's used them as his weapons and as his agents to execute judgment and justice within the world. But here's what he says in verse 17, but no weapon formed against you will prosper. Here's the idea. The sum and the substance of every weapon created by Satan, created by sinful human beings, will have no effect on No weapon formed against you will prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. And here's the idea. God will not only not allow an attack on his people in the day of the kingdom, God won't even allow people to say bad things about you with their mouth. People are saying bad things with their mouth right now, Lord. They're talking about me at work. They're talking about me at school. Yeah, but in the kingdom, that's not the way it's going to be. Because your future isn't here. Your future is somewhere else. And God guarantees you heaven. John Corson wrote, When things go wrong, When times look bleak, when the situation is dry, we can either feel sorry for ourselves or we can sing a song. I strongly suggest the latter. Here's what John Corson says. Sing enthusiastically. Sing intelligently. Sing joyfully. And watch God. Enlarge your tent. I feel so alone. Oh, but God's going to add to your ministry. He's going to add because He's got unfinished business with you. He wants to fulfill the ministry that He's given to you. Are you going up or are you going down? Are you going back? Are you going forward? Are you loving more? Are you loving less? Are you serving more? Are you serving less? Are you learning more? Are you learning less? Are you backsliding? Repent. Turn from your sin. Turn to Him. He will love you. He will forgive you. He will restore you. And He'll make the shame go away. And the fear go away. And the humiliation go away. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for each and every person within the sound of my voice. Lord, for those who are going forward, hallelujah. For those who are going backwards, Lord, I pray that even now in the quietness of their heart, that, Lord, that they would do an inventory, that they would check their mind and their heart and their circumstances, and they would ask the question, am I backsliding? Am I going backwards? And if the answer is yes, Lord, I pray that they would turn from their sin even now, that they would confess their sin, that they would relinquish it, that they would forsake it, and that they would return to you. And Lord, as we pray, Lord, I pray that that you will fill our hearts with the desire to love you and to serve you and to minister to you and to submit to you. Not by doing more, but being exactly what you want us to be in the exact circumstance that you want us to be. Loving and serving and praying in that circumstance that you have called us to. Lord, I pray that no one listening to my voice would be manipulated by guilt or fear or humiliation, but rather that they would experience joy and peace as they submit to that perfect plan that you have for them. Come on. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Still more awesome than